0: Well, thank you, Michael and Tim, for your uh, welcome today. It's good to be uh, back out here. Each time I come, the church looks a little bit different. I remember when I first came out to Diamond Creek, we used to meet up up there, and it's just grown and uh, changed sides, and uh, some people the same, some people different over the years. I think I first came out here when Stephen Hale was uh, the uh, senior minister here, so it's good to have uh, followed him when Di was here and... uh, uh, Guy Mason I've seen that, uh, out here as well, um, and now Tim. So it's uh, terrific uh, to just being with uh, uh, St John's in its different uh, reinventions of itself as it reaches out to the community of Diamond Creek. I thank Tim too for the invitation to come and uh, speak to you on what is Ridley Sunday, where we try to re- promote the ministry of Ridley College as a place where people can uh, train for Christian ministry. Um, it's something that we have very, uh, very dear to our hearts that uh, we can raise up that next generation of believers by raising up men and women from within our congregations right around Melbourne to help them to uh, see the importance of applying God's word uh, to God's world. And uh, it's terrific. Uh, yeah, I notice as well that people from other institutions around here. I see Dell over there and uh, MST, uh, where she works, is uh, doing a similar kind of thing. I met Roy in our uh, little card thing earlier and his work for Wycliffe over the years. So there are many other institutions, but I do want to talk to you, not so much about Ridley, um, because one of the things I want to say about Ridley is that what Ridley commends to people is the importance of uh, shaping our thinking by the Bible. So it would seem to me odd that if I came out here to talk to you about Ridley and all I spoke to you about was Ridley and not the Bible. So what I'm going to do today is actually preach from God's Word as a model of what we want to promote uh, at Ridley College. I should say there's a little bit of information if you want some further about uh, Ridley. Uh, We have an annual dinner on this coming uh, Saturday. Uh, There's some flyers, those out in the foyer. We have our open day and evening next Wednesday night. If you want to do any further uh, study, feel free to come uh, to that. And each of you will have received a little uh, sheet, I think, as you came in that uh, enables you, if you wish, to have your name and a list to receive the Ridley Report. And I do know some of you pray for Ridley regularly. I see Joan Hammond in the congregation. I I think uh, we're greatly indebted to her prayers and to the prayers of many other people here who pray for the work of Ridley, and we, I want to thank you for that as uh, we go on. But I don't want to spend any more time talking about Ridley. I actually, uh, the thing that drives me in ministry is not talking about Ridley, but talking about God's Word, and that's something that we're passionate about at, at Ridley. So let me, as we turn to God's Word, let me begin with prayer. Lord God, thanks so much for the great privilege it is to have heard your Word, the Gospel, and to be shaped and changed by it. Thank you that your word builds us up in that gospel faith. Thank you that your word challenges us in the way we live. And we pray that you might be with me, that I may say true things and say them clearly. We pray that you may uh, shape each one of us as we respond to your word. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the sad things, I think, as a Christian is that when most people, most Australians, look at the church, they don't think, I've got to be a part of that. They're not knocking at our doors saying, let me in, I want to join in. And I think we've got to change that. The Christian message of life and hope and forgiveness and a fresh start is too valuable to be spoiled by the way we live as Christians as a church. But how can we do it? And where do we begin? 2 Timothy chapter 3 tells us the difference between a a true godliness and a false godliness. And then explains how we can live, how can we be equipped to live a godly life in God's world. I want to suggest there are three parts in this passage that will help us think through some of those questions today. In verses 1 to 9 we see the temptations and patterns of false godliness. Verses 10 to 13 we see a model uh, in Paul's life of true godliness. And then the well-known verse at the end of the chapter, verses 14 to 17, tell us how to be equipped for godliness. Well, Paul is uh, wanting to draw an important distinction between actions that stem from a false godliness and those that come from a genuine godliness. But where does he see the problem? Is it that there's false godliness outside the church and true godliness inside the church? Well, maybe... That long list of negative things we see there in verses 2, 3, 4 and 5 may well refer to the church. And indeed those terrible times in the last days in verse 1 might suggest that he has persecution by non-Christians in view. And he does talk about persecution in verses 11 and 12. He talks in verse 2 about people will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money and so on as if it refers to people in general. But while it might refer, it might include the word in general, his real concern, I think, is ungodliness in the church. 2 Timothy, as a book, refers to many people who have turned away from the true faith. Paul writing to Timothy, trying to get him to shore up the faith of enlightened believers, As he goes through, he mentions a number of people who have given up the faith. In 1.15, he mentions phygelies and Hermogenes. In chapter 2, he describes how Hymenaeus and Philetus have wrong views of the resurrection and how that impacts their ministry. In chapter 4, he recalls how Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted him and how Alexander, the coppersmith, did him great harm And oppose the apostolic message. All of those in the book are from within the church. And he refers to those who are going creeping into homes or literally households. And while we think in terms of houses in the New Testament, this is a way too of describing the early church meetings as they met in households. And I think the clincher is in verse 5 where it says, having a form of godliness but denying its power. Here are people who are making a pretense of being part of God's community, identifying themselves, it seems to me, as believers. So while these things may well apply to the world outside, people will be lovers of money, lovers of themselves, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love and so on, What Paul is saying is that this is a real danger for among God's people as well. We who claim to be God's people but don't live lives that honour God, that we have a kind of false godliness. So we need to read this passage not as referring to them, those outside the church, but to those of us inside, among God's people and to make sure we are not like this. And that's why I've labelled this section the temptations of false godliness. Well, what do we mean by false godliness? How does Paul unpack that here? Well, there are a lot of uh, characteristics that he sets out in verses 1 to 9, but there are at least four key ideas that I find helpful to hang the rest of the descriptions on. In verse 2, they are described as lovers of themselves, and also lovers of money. In verse 4, they're lovers of pleasure, not lovers of God. And finally in verse 6, though the word's not used, an example is given of how they are lovers of power. These are the four things. Lovers of themselves, lovers of money, lovers of pleasure, lovers of power. And many of the other descriptions that are there can fit under one or other of these headings. Look at some of the words. And the lovers of themselves, they're boastful, they're proud, they're conceited, they're treacherous, they're slanderous. They're so heartless that our version calls them brutal. Lovers of themselves. They're lovers of money. They're ungrateful. That is, they don't have a proper attitude towards money. They're disobedient to their parents. Presumably adult parents. That is, they want to use their money for themselves, for their own lifestyle, rather than to provide for their parents. They're described as exploiting weak women as a way of getting financial support. They're lovers of money. They're also lovers of pleasure. They're described here as without self-control, haters of good, unholy and lovers of power, power over others, power over the weak women, abusive, brutal, slanderous and rash. For them, the form of godliness is a means to an end. They're described as people of depraved minds who have a counterfeit faith. And before we quickly dismiss them, and say, well, St John's Diamond Creek's not like that, or I'm not like that. The Royal Commission into Sexual Abuse has recently shown us that true Christian living does not always characterise even the leaders, let alone the followers of the Lord Jesus. The lives of the leaders of God's people has let God down and smeared his name before the watching world. (coughs) And instead of being now valued in many parts of the community, the community now often despises us. That's what makes it so important, the positive links that you have here with the community at Diamond Creek, where there's been a long tradition of being involved in the community and serving the community, a very positive thing, because we now need to work hard at earning the respect of those around. Not just so that we feel a little bit better about ourselves, but to do the task that God has called on us to do, the task of Christian ministry and witness in our daily lives and words. (coughs) Paul is urging Timothy and the members of his church there in Ephesus to not be like this. These temptations, the love of self, the love of money, the love of pleasure, the love of power, are real for Christians and their pastors. They're real for me and I suspect they're real for you as well. They can lead to destructive lives which have the outward appearance of godliness but which deny the power of a life linked with Lord Jesus. So Paul wants to give us a way forward But before we have that way forward, we must realise that is what we are like. They are our temptations. They are not just the temptations of the world, but they are our temptations to put ourselves forward, to love money, to love pleasure, to pursue power. But Paul tells us that's not the way we should stay. For he gives us a model of true godliness as he recounts his own life. You, however, know all about my teaching, my way of life, my purpose, my faith, patience, love, endurance, persecutions, sufferings. What kind of things happened to me in Antioch, Iconium and Lystra, the persecutions I endured. Paul doesn't just criticise people for not being as good as him. That's not what he's on about. But he points to the example of his own life and ministry. And say, be like this, be like Jesus. The book on my shelf on integrity and ministry. The subtitle is Leading with God Watching. That's how we should live our lives, isn't it? Living with God Watching knowing that everything that we do, he looks at and sees. Everything we listen to, everything we read, everything we watch, he looks at with us. He is watching. Not because he wants to catch us out doing something, but because he wants the best for us, because he wants to shape us so they'll be useful to serve God's people, and to serve the world. So he can confidently point to his teaching based firmly on the scriptures, to his conduct, his way of life, his purpose or aim in life, his faith or perhaps faithfulness, his endurance, his steadfastness, his love. But do you notice the thing that he used climactically to talk about at the beginning of verse 11? his persecutions and sufferings, what someone called a blizzard of troubles. And the fact that he doesn't fill that out with grisly details implies that they are well known by Timothy and the readers in Ephesus. But his real purpose is to highlight that the life of Christian living and indeed of Christian discipleship is not one of these... Self, money, pleasure, power. The life of Christian discipleship is one of costly service. Christian ministry is not easy, but vital. Tonight I'll be uh, speaking at the night time service, and there'll be some young people there. I'll be encouraging to think about the challenge of going into full time Christian ministry but I don't want them to go in with their eyes closed as if somehow I can promise them a nice, easy pathway through life in Christian ministry. The reason why Christian ministry is promoted in Scripture is not because it will be easy. It's a life of persecutions and sufferings. But because the Gospel is so important in changing people's lives and building people up in the faith that makes them the task of Christian ministry, a really important one even though it is difficult. There may be some of you here who are even thinking about that as a future pathway in a more full-time capacity. But if they are your uh, children, grandchildren, who are coming on tonight, encourage them to think about the pathway of Christian ministry we need the best people we can possibly get into Christian ministry in a world that's increasingly hostile to the Christian message and wants to marginalise God's people and his message. You see, Paul was not one who sought to avoid suffering but he endured it and was rescued not from suffering but through suffering. I think we've had it pretty easy in the church for the last perhaps 30 or 40 years, really since World War II in a sense. We've been part of the community and people have thought it's good that there are Christians around, it's good that the church is around, they're doing some good things in the community. In the next 10, 20, 30 years, I suspect that will be much less the case. And we will need to experience people's opposition and when it won't be an easy pathway through life, identifying with the Lord Jesus. Paul mentions three places where he suffered persecution. He talks about Antioch, Pisidian Antioch, a a prosperous city in the Eastern Roman Empire which he visited on his first missionary journey, where the Jews turned people against Paul and Barnabas and forced them to leave the city, kicked out because of his message. He mentions Iconium, a city at the transport crossroads, perhaps the Greensboro of the ancient world, where Paul and Barnabas were initially welcomed, but were later stoned and had to flee. And Lystra, a city near Iconium, where the Jews had persecuted them, who had persecuted them in Antioch and Iconium, caught up with them. And Paul there received another stoning and was dragged out of the city and left for dead. Paul's not writing this from an armchair as if he looks back on a comfortable life of Christian ministry. Paul's more likely writing it from a hospital bed where he's still recovering from the wounds of Christian ministry. And the general principle that emerges in verse 12 is that all Christians, not just leaders, but all who desire to live a godly life in Christ will be persecuted. There's a real cost for every believer that comes from being identified with Christ. This is not an easy passage to read, is it? But then living as a Christian in God's world is sometimes not an easy pathway. It's the only pathway that really makes sense of the world. It's the only pathway that counts in this life. But it's not an easy pathway. The alternative in verse 13 is a life of of deceit, pretending to be godly, but having a false or empty godliness. Well, how can we be equipped for a genuine life of godliness and a live Christian faith like the Apostle Paul? Let's look at the flow of this chapter. In verse 1 he starts with, mark this. Then in verse 10 he says, you however, and the third section, verse 14, but as for you, as he brings the teaching home, each one builds on the one before. And so here are our three sections. The temptations of false godliness in verses 1 to 9, a model of true godliness from 10 to 14, and the third section, verses 14 to 17, How we can be equipped for godliness. Do you notice in verse 14 that godliness is equated with continuing in what you've learned and become convinced of? As for you, Paul writes, continuing what you've learned and become convinced of because you know those from whom you've learned it. The Apostle Paul, it's a genuine gospel. It's come from someone who met the risen Lord Jesus, the one we meet in the scriptures. And can you see too that Paul has a foundation to build on, a solid foundation laid by others. We see how Timothy from infancy has known the holy scriptures. and In chapter 1 his mother and grandmother Lois and Eunice are mentioned perhaps others in the church. How from infancy you've known the Holy Scriptures. Never underestimate the importance of your children's ministry or youth ministry in a church. I know there's been a passion here at uh, St John's for many years. Sometimes it can get a bit loud. Sometimes it can get a bit messy But honestly, brothers and sisters, the children and youth of this church are the future of God's people. Ministry to them is valuable because they'll be sitting where you are sitting now in 20, 30, 40 years' time. A great foundation to build on reminds us of the importance of training and teaching our children and grandchildren in the faith. you notice that that solid foundation that Paul was able to build on was how Timothy from infancy had known the Holy Scriptures. And he describes the Scriptures as those that are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. That's Paul's deepest goal. Not that you might have a mature, well-rounded personality. Not that you can play three musical instruments. Not that you've had exposure to all the different forms of ballet or anything like that. Those things aren't bad things, they're good things. But the most important thing is that the scriptures will make you wise for salvation in Christ Jesus. So value the teaching of the Bible to yourself, yes, to your children, to your grandchildren, to the youth group, many other young people in the church. We have a number of uh, Sudanese students at Ridley, refugees from South Sudan, the newest country in the world. And if you talk to them, it's very clear their top priority as they've and part of a new country is ministry to the youth and children in their midst. They worry that in this new context, their youth and children will have so many opportunities that they'll veer away from the gospel truths that they knew back in their own countries. You think they might rejoice in the fact that uh, here we have plenty of access to the good things in life. But their real concern is that that access to all the good things in life might turn them away from the best thing in life, a true faith in the living Lord Jesus. And then comes the most famous verse, I think, in the book, verse 16. You've heard it before. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness. And it's often valued because it claims that the Bible is inspired by God, breathed out by God, and that it clearly does say. Using human beings, but coming from God, not just people's imaginations or thoughts, What we have in scripture is what God intended us to know so that we can understand him and how we're to live in response to all that he's done for us. What we're to value. What we're to be like. But the main purpose of verses 16 and 17, for it continues on to say that as a result of having this scripture, the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. The purpose of these verses is not simply to prove that the Scriptures are inspired by God, but rather to insist that being shaped by the Scriptures is what will equip God's leaders and God's people for true godliness. That's the context of the passage. And that's what we're on about at a theological college like Ridley. We want to use the Bible to train men and women Christian ministry amongst God's people in Australia and overseas as we seek to bring the saving news of Jesus to God's world, as we seek to use God's saving word, the gospel, to transform people's lives, to shape who we are as people as well as who we are as those who minister in God's name. So these scriptures, which are really what we're on about it really, are described as useful for particular purposes. You notice they're there for teaching. Teaching sometimes refers to the content of what's taught, but here it means the activity or process of teaching. We're not just to teach people how the latest uh, trends in church growth, or the way to plant a church, or the latest techniques to Counsel people. The Bible is meant to shape the way we think, what we believe, what we value. And they are for rebuking and correcting, for bringing wrong behaviour and ideas to the foreground to be changed. And they're finally for training or shaping in righteousness. With the final goal set out in verse 17 that the servant of God might be thoroughly equipped for every good work. In other words, our aim in studying the Bible isn't to become a Wikipedia of Bible knowledge, but so that we're equipped to live a life of true Godliness, genuine righteousness. We're equipped to do every good work under God. So these verses are not primarily a claim for the authority of the Bible, but an encouragement to use this inspired Bible to be shaped for the life and mission that God wants us to have. A couple of years ago, I was at a school of biblical preaching in Yangon in uh, Burma, now Myanmar. And the Burmese Archbishop who's been out to Australia, Archbishop Stephen, said to those who are training for ministry, he said, the Church needs holiness. Holiness. If it's going to make an impact in the life of the Burmese people, the Church needs holiness. (coughs) And you'll never get holiness without the Bible. Learn your Bible, study your Bible, preach your Bible. It's great to hear that from an Archbishop with such clarity. The Bible's got to be at the centre of our Christian life and ministry. This passage tells us don't settle for false godliness. Let's not spend our lives being lovers of pleasure, lovers of power, lovers of money, lovers of self. Follow the examples of costly life and ministry given by the apostles and dig deeply into God's words which have been written to equip us for a genuine life of servant ministry. So pray for Ridley. Pray for the other theological colleges and missionary training colleges here in Melbourne. Pray for us, that we might be places that value and teach and are shaped by the Scriptures. And if it's appropriate, study at Ridley. We now have online teaching in order to do that, or some of our courses. But pray, at the very least for Ridley, Pray for people like Jeremy who's training for ministry. Pray for others as they train at different stages of their Christian life and ministry. Pray that God might raise up from here in Diamond Creek where they've seen good ministry happen. Pray that God might raise up men and women who'll be equipped for godly ministry. And send them out with your encouragement, with your blessing. Send them out with your support. Our world, our churches desperately need more and more people who live by the Bible and teach the Bible. So today I don't really want to tell you about Ridley. I want to tell you about the Bible. How essential studying the Bible is for Christian life and ministry. Please model that to the young people in your charge. Please model that to your children and grandchildren. Please model that to the youth and children of this church. And please embody that in the way that you relate to God, that you might feed on God's word regularly, that it might give you the life that it's intended to give, that it might, as Paul says, equip you thoroughly for every good work. Let's pray. Thanks so much, dear God, that you do shape and teach us through your Word, the Bible. Thank you that you want to equip us for genuine, attractive Godliness, not a life of ease, not a life about self or money or pleasure or power, but a life of service, serving you and serving others. And we pray that you've, in your kindness, given us the tool for just that, the Holy Scriptures themselves. Please help us to value them and be shaped on them. And I pray, dear God, that you might raise up people from this church today, people who wish to study your word further and be better equipped for Christian life and ministry. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.